Hello and welcome to the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Moss. I'm sitting in a hotel room in Alexandria, Virginia, with Chandler Arnold. Thanks for coming to my hotel room, Chandler. Happy to be here. Looking forward to talking more. Uh, We're going to be talking about philanthropy uh, and your role in it. But first, we're going to learn a little bit, a little bit about you, and uh, I'm going to dive right into that. Uh, what was your childhood like? What were you like when you were a little boy? Um, so I grew up in a very small town in rural Western North Carolina in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Um, great place to grow up. Um, beautiful area. Wonderful people. Um, it's also very homogenous, very conservative, very religious. Um, homogenous, so mostly Jews. <laughs> large, large we, Buddhist population there. Um, more in the Protestant category. Uh, religious sure. diversity is kind of Baptist versus Methodist versus Presbyterian. Um, and you know, I was a little gay kid um, growing up in the Reagan era and the AIDS crisis. So there were some really challenging parts about that as well. But um, I had an incredible family and a wonderful, supportive group of friends, so I was really lucky. Um, um, and that, you know, that background in, in, in good and challenging ways influenced a, lo- a lot of how I look at life. Uh, yeah, they, I, we are approximately the same age, uh, and uh, it was a difficult time to... I mean, I, uh, I'm not a little gay boy, but uh, I was uh, just for like being tolerant of it, right? You could get beat up. Yep. 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 <laughs> it was a particularly hostile situation. Uh, like I would often defend, right, uh, some of my friends, and it was it, 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 you instantly like then I'm gay too. Y'all, it's it, it doesn't matter, right? And they they're getting taught a lot of hate at home, so you can't really blame those other kids. It was a tough time, uh, and, and I'm glad that you got out of it. You seem uh, you seem to be pretty happy, and uh, you're married with a husband. Yes, we have we have two young children, uh, a seven year old and a one and a half year old, and it's it's funny as now the parent of a little boy this age, um, you know, when I was growing up, like unlike my, you know, the the small number of people in my community who might have been Native American or Black, you know, you couldn't obviously look at me and tell that I was gay. Now I did have the words to all of Madonna's Vogue written in a silver glitter pin on a poster in my room, so I guess if you look closely, you might have known, but. I discovered early on that I could sort of in some ways pass in these mainstream social circles, but I knew that my wiring was different on the inside and and kind of felt at a young age that I had sort of a responsibility to try to help other folks that might have been dealing with some of the same challenges. So it's I hadn't really thought about that until I, I returned home a couple of weeks ago for a project. Um, it's It's interesting to see how those formative experiences do shape us and in conscious and unconscious ways. Were there ways. things there in North Carolina that you did enjoy growing up? Oh my God, so many things. You know, it's an incredibly beautiful, natural environment. Hiking, I was an Eagle Scout. Hiking, hmm. camping, you know, swimming. Um, as I mentioned, my family, incredible humans, very, very close to. Um, so lots of wonderful things. Um, and and those Eagles, challenges. Eagle Scout's quite an accomplishment. Uh, thank you, thank you. Um, my father was one as well. I did not, um, I did not make it. Uh, it's it's uh, you know um, my dad encouraged me to do it. I, I got it at thirteen. Um, he encouraged me to do For it. For those in- who may not be familiar, this means you got a, a large number of badges. 
a large number of badges, a large number of projects. How many badges is it to be an E? Do you remember the, the I don't specifics? even remember. I don't remember. What was your, is there a badge that you, that, that you, st- the skills from which you still use today? Um, you start fires out there? No, <laughs> we do, no we do, our family does camp. We took camping. our one-year-old camping, uh, uh, with her pack and play, there, there wasn't a camping with a pack and play merit badge, though. But um, you know, I, I did learn a lot of skills. But I think it was more less the skills and more sort of a respect for the environment, um, an interest in sort of working with all types of people. Uh, those those are the things that stay with me, um, and a, just sort of a basic respect for capability. I think right, like. I like the badge system, and in fact, there have been some efforts in education to bring that back. It's pretty much always just like getting your graphic design badge, <laughs> so that they can hire like teenagers. <laughs> um, so, uh, do you remember the first time that you made a gift or did something generous? So, tithing was a, a big part of our experience. So, I remember when my sister and I first got an allowance in exchange for. A number of additional chores. I think it was two dollars and ten cents a week, and we um, agreed to give ten percent of that away. So, since my earliest days, some notion of using I'm it's a very one cents. It, it yes, yes, and I think my dad like matched it. So we would give fifty cents to the church offering or whatever it was every week, and his point was. It's not about the amount of money. It's about the philosophy and the sort of... 50 cents a week adds up. It totally adds up. Yeah, that was a long time ago. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so, so that's been a part, at a, very, a part of my perspective from a very young age. Now, you know, I'm, I'm not donating that necessarily to a religious institution now. I'm, I'm using my, my personal philanthropy in other ways... But the philosophy has has always been there. Uh, yes, like as a as a habit. This is very similar to what so Jews have a sedeka box and some other things, and a lot of it's just about like the habitual nature of it. And I think most of the fundraisers at home will agree that like if you want to give more than once, that's generally welcome. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so you went to is that what you went to school? Out there, did you go to public school in the Blue Ridge Mountains? I went to public school in McDowell County, North Carolina. Public school all the way through graduation. Um, fantastic education. Really wonderful teachers. Really lucky and fortunate. Also come from a family of educators. My mother and grandmother and sister are all teachers. So um, the sort of concept of education was a very important one. The women one. are teachers? Coincidentally, these these women the men, are teachers. What do the men do? Um, my dad is an entrepreneur, um, so in many ways I'm sort of a combination of the two of them. <laughs> I was a social entrepreneur who's focused on education, so I guess I come by it honestly. Very, yeah. Both my parents are teachers, which is, uh, lecturers in fact, which is mm-hmm. why I talk a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, so you, you've mentioned the church a few times. What, what, was it a, uh, you were a Protestant? Uh, what were you grew, grew up in a Baptist church. <laughs> um, um, the, the, sorry, you didn't want the sermon in Latin. That was very important too. <laughs> well, actually, my church had something at the at the time called priesthood of the believer, which my family really appreciated. And that notion in the Baptist church at that time, I think that's maybe not. I don't know if this church currently abides by that doctrine anymore. But you're not listening. Uh, yeah. 
it, it basically the 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 concept was that each person can have an individual relationship with God. They can yeah. read the Bible, interpret it for themselves, and make their own decision, as really? opposed to a priest or a pastor yeah, yeah. telling them yeah. what the Bible means. Yeah, and, that's that's, that's Protestant. My family, as I understand. yeah, my family really liked that. Um, and and as churches went in the community at the time, ours was quite liberal. So my mother was a deacon. We had a woman minister, you know, which was pretty unusual in the community at that time. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah, so you went, You also mentioned uh, that you don't donate. You probably, you still have the habit of giving, but not to the, not to the church. I correct. Where, where do you where do you, where do you donate? Or what lot, sort of causes? A lot of our philanthropy now is focused on things like, as with many people, things that are very personal to us. So I. A lot of my giving is focused on education, access, equity, um, queer causes. Um, but, you know, it's changing over time. So I would say that my husband and I donated in those areas, you know, largely for the past 15 years or so. Our son is now seven and he uh, wants to be an entomologist focused on ants uh, and fighting climate change. So he is very, very focused on that topic. And as we have conversations about giving over the last few years, he's really been encouraging us to think more about climate change, which is, of course, something that's I'm, you know, in agreement with him about that. Yeah, so. I hear, people, I hear like, they're like, well, you know, I'm really focused on climate change. It's like, yes, I, too, want to live. <laughs> Who? What's not to love about saving the planet? Um, I enjoy breathing and <laughs> big fan. seeing the outside. Um so it's been it's been rewarding to have you know early stage conversations with him about things that we can do not only in our own practices but in terms of the modest giving that we're able to do um, to help him have a part in sort of choosing the those causes as well. Are you uh, in some way helping him build the habit? Is there a tithe, Is there a version of tithing? Does he give? Ten percent of his allowance. Well, he doesn't get an allowance okay. yet, Dave. Um, uh, but that we actually are talking about that right now, um, um, and about volunteering as well. So trying to sort of pair action with giving and ways that he can help. So he's just written a letter to President Biden, sharing some thoughts and ideas. Uh, uh, so so trying to Letting think about you know about climate change. Finally, the president. He, will he's learn. sharing some facts. There's also a very strong um, crayon-based picture. Um, I mean, those so, things yeah. they track all the layers that come in, and they use the volume on particular issues to like prioritize. I, it, in fact, it, it's, it's a very small amount of impact. If there were no letters arriving there about please do something mm-hmm. about climate change, right? Then maybe they'd, then they'd have all the more reason to not. They can say there's no no one's asking us. No one's asking, and and we want him and especially our daughter to know that they have a voice and that they can use that voice. Very cool. Uh, all right. So eventually you left. What is the what was the name of the town? Is it still uh, there? It is still Did there. It have a name? Uh, Marion, North Carolina. Marion, uh, just off the Blue Ridge Mountain. Uh, so eventually Blue Ridge you Parkway. Le- eventually you left. Yes, because uh, you're here now in Alexandria. So, <laughs> uh, did you? I assume you left for school. I did. I went to to Harvard for college. Um, Harvard. I think I think they might have thought that I would show up with straw in my hair and and barefooted, um, but I had a, tr- a tremendous time. I, I only about twenty percent of my high school graduating class goes to college. Only three of us went out of state my year, so it was a sort of a big journey for me. Um, but 
I, I had a tremendous time and, and learned a ton, probably more outside of the classroom than inside the classroom, but the, the classroom stuff was pretty great, too. Did you know there's a guy out there named Bill Harvard? And his, he's like the descendant of the founder of Harvard? Uh, oh, I did not know that. The, the first donor, I guess, who, who we named the yeah, school I don't think after. He's, yeah, he's not, the, like, yeah. not actually the founder. Right. That was the same thing. I kept... I think it was founded I don't think by Dickinson's the founder of Dickinson either. <laughs> right, right. I think uh, well, this is to the point that philanthropists have a lot of power. I think it was founded by the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which became, of course, Massachusetts. Yeah, long time, and, like sixteen twenty or something. Yeah, sixteen thirty six, and and the first donor um, had the last name Harvard and named the school after. Yeah, so that I guess person. that guy's yeah. So there's a there's a bill. I once like want to bet on that. Oh yeah, that that there, that there were descendants of Harvard. Like alive, right? No, and I the part that was also that one of them's a lawyer. Well, like, that we'll be able to find him like on a law firm's page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we found like William Harvard the fourth. He's practicing. I'm sure he's a great guy. <laughs> <laughs> the it is interesting to think that like someone's philanthropy in 1636, which is quite a long time ago, right, could lead to that family's name becoming so ubiquitous and eventually a 50 billion dollar fund. Something we talked about on, on the podcast several times, right? It is larger than a lot of grant-making institutions. And anyone interested in the deep dive on that can find plenty of criticism. My general question is, like, how much of that... Like, you're coming from Marion. And at the time, it was not $50 billion, but many billions of dollars in the fund. Um, and growing precipitously. Uh, like... What did you think Harvard was? How did you think they paid for all the fancy buildings and teachers and everything? Um, was it all you thought that the, they used, they took tuition and that's what ran the school? I, I think that's it's hard to sort of think back to my whatever eighteen yeah, year old self. I, I guess I didn't know anything. I, I, was, I, I was dumb and I didn't know anything. Right. I mean, I knew that I was taking out some loans <laughs> and the tuition check seemed really large, and I probably assumed that that paid for everything. Um, you know, as I went through the experience, I think I came to understand more about the the larger institution that is Harvard, which does a lot of tremendous things um, yeah. and has a tremendous endowment, um, which, you know, I, you know, I'm not against, though, with my personal giving, uh, I, I feel like, you know, my incremental X is not really going to change that 53 billion. They're, they're not going to need to up it to 54 billion because of what I'm giving. So, you know, we, I tend to do a lot of like our 25th reunion is coming up. So I was on a call with them yesterday, um, encouraging my classmates to put together a, a panel on the sort of nexus between financial means, philanthropy, and social impact. And so I'm sort of pushing to create this conversation as a as a big part of the reunion. So I find that now my involvement is less as a financial contributor and more as a, a sort of social change advocate trying to work with them to engage their professors and students and alums in, in social change activities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean... Uh, in general, I think that's just an awful lot of money to be in one place. Uh, and I think I, the utopic vision is that it would be spread a little bit more evenly than that. However, right, like money is in large funds. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, that's probably not the largest fund in the world. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it, and it maybe it gets disproportionate criticism because it's Harvard and, um, and out there like that. Like for they're, they're uh, stewarding $50 billion as responsibly 
as any other current steward of that much money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they have done, I believe they've divested from oil and done many other like things that and, and they're making, some of the other enormous fund managers would never would would scoff, are scoffing at. That's true. That's true. And I think they're they're making steps towards making tuition, you know, free or more affordable to an increasing percentage of the population. Could they do more? Yes. It sounds like enough that they would. I mean, I'm not. I haven't done the math, but that's an awful lot of money. <laughs> yeah. It seems like, like the, perhaps the tuition, right? But like, then asking them for money afterwards is the like, and some and you were like, I believe they do like student pledge drives. So so people who have had to take out loans in order to like go to this thing to then ask them for like more money. It's a, I wonder like where do they have a number where they would stop? It's a great question, and you know it's like it, have they ever thought about it. I mean, because it's got to be soon. It's it's true, <laughs> and, and and you know Harvard's not the only one that wrestles with that question. Yeah. You know, I I ran fundraising for fifteen years for a national nonprofit, and you know we thought about like, do we ask some of the organizations that we serve for donations, and it, you know. It's not as easy an answer as you think it might be because I remember one mailing, we took the recipients off the list and a few reached out and said, hey, like, I do want to contribute. You know, I was looking forward to that opportunity. My, you know, my means are more modest, but wanting to give back isn't dependent on one socioeconomic status necessarily. So it's, it's a complicated question. Well, that's certainly the one I know a lot. Of, like with Dickinson, I've I've done some work trying to like. I don't think my classmates should give to Dickinson. They don't have. They have billions in the endowment, but not, not not, not as much as Harvard. But it's also a much smaller mm-hmm. situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their tuition's super high, and mm-hmm. they're charging it to <laughs> whoever wants to pay it. Really, um, but uh, and one of the responses I hear that I do respect is like when they went there, they had a scholarship and that scholarship was paid by people who donated and they doing that's very important to them and that boy that makes a lot of sense to me right that's that's their life and i think a lot of us donate pretty much everybody donates it's going to be to something that you have some personal experience with uh and that tugs at the heartstrings mm-hmm. which is important for fundraisers especially this time of year end of the year to remember nostalgia is a is a basically like some sort of magic trick like a charm a spell and and connection, it's I think. College, it's why colleges like Harvard are so good mm-hmm. at raising money because obviously you're nostalgic about your about your Harvard experience, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I'm sure if you didn't enjoy your time at Harvard, you're less likely to donate there. Even mm-hmm. if you ended up very successful in life and making a lot of money because of your Harvard degree, if you like had had a bad time socially there, you, I'm sure those people donate less. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Even if the like financial giving back part makes sense. No, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think to fundraisers listening, connection and relationship are probably two of the most critical things that you can try to build and create with any fundraising outreach or document or conversation or speech that you ever give. So did you stu- did you study social entrepreneurship at Harvard? Well, I studied they you take all they you all take the same classes, right? Well, at the time that I was there... And you have concentrations. It, very good, very good. Maybe you go to, like, houses? Are there houses or something? Yeah, it's, it's, you're getting all the, all the inside <laughs> terms right. Uh, at the time that I was there, about 25% of the classes were what they called core classes that everyone what took. 25%? 25 that everyone took some subset of. And then 
you had your, your major, which Harvard calls a concentration, and then electives. And my concentration was social change in American history and literature. So uh, I looked at the women's movement, the education reform movement, civil rights, um, worked with an amazing professor, Robert Coles, who got the Presidential Medal of Freedom and was one of the early folks to advocate for incorporating public service into one's college experience. So while I've given Harvard a little bit of a hard time in, in some categories, I really want to commend them because this was this was far before sort of public service in broad strokes on college campuses was as cool as it is now. Um, and they were doing some really amazing work there. And, and a, a lot of what I learned came from that sort of synergistic incorporation of my public service experiences into the classwork that I was doing. And, and I, I give them a lot of credit for that. Um, so that's, so you are right. Social entrepreneurship, um, not, I don't think that I, when I went to Dickinson, I don't think I would have known what that meant. No, no, me either. Uh, I, I do vaguely remember like the first time I heard it a few years later. Mm-hmm. And, and I, it was in the context of GW had it as like a major, they might've been the first school to like have mm-hmm. it as a major. Mm-hmm. Um, and Alex Simon, one of our first board members was, was a student there studying it at the time. Uh, but it, did, it was, we had business. I'm trying to think, what would I have, to, I, theater, honestly, is the closest to social change. Class. That's what I majored in. It's probably the closest to social change that Dickinson offered. Because uh, we did, t- when we would talk about that with our, like, what's the purpose of mm-hmm. this play? We mm-hmm. We're not just entertaining, right? Because, if I'm going to be honest, plays put on college are not entertaining. <laughs> so, hopefully. <laughs> and and ours, I was, my scenes were very entertaining. <laughs> Whether they were intended to be or not. No, we did, we did, there's a good theater department, we did some good work. But it is true that, like, you have the, like, you don't have to sell tickets. Yep. yep. Right? So you get to do more academic, like weirder experimental work that like, and you don't, and you cannot care if the people in the audience didn't, didn't enjoy it. Right. Which was, which was, which actually a lot of people doing theater is what they want to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> the, um, but, um, uh, boy, I uh, lost my train of thought there. Um, yeah. Well, so, uh, the, uh, oh yeah. So it wasn't like, we're not that old, and um, I'm sure it was uh, newish to have the word social change in your concentration for you. To, oh, and 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 the the major, the concentration was actually American history and literature, and I sort right. of and petitioned like, for a special focus within that. that within that work to focus on social change. So sure, yeah, and, and you're right. Like even the term social, and but this you know, is super uh, trendy now. Very sexy um, now. Very trendy now. There are many uh, postgraduate programs that offer degrees in philanthropy. Our managing director is pursuing her doctorate mm-hmm. in philanthropy, mm-hmm. which was not something when I graduated from college was not a, a thing you could get a doctorate in. Correct. Uh, I think maybe at IUP. There might have been one program. Uh, but now there's like 76 places that'll that'll let you do that. And plus a lot more that'll like let you design almost any program. Uh, and there's increasingly like specially set up programs on campuses. Uh, there's another school in Cambridge called MIT, uh, and we had well, a large partnership with Saul for several years. Exactly. And they're doing, and they're, uh, it's a sort of a confluence of trends there. One of those trends uh, is, actually, I think, two that are very important for this conversation. Alumni are saying, what are you doing about social change? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Show me the program that's about social. I don't, great, you have patents. 
mm-hmm. always had patents, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And also students, the, the best students, rising ones that are thinking about which school in Cambridge they want to go to, right? Uh, or right, which of the Ivy Leagues, like the, the, the they want to know what are the, what are my, they care a lot about this stuff. Mm-hmm. They grew up, they've been, they've grown up watching school shootings and an action on climate change and there's going to be something that they care about and that's why they're going to school. So they need to hear it too. So we've seen since I was at, I'm sure Dickinson probably has something now. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's an option for this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's bad. They're not qualified. Those people aren't qualified. <laughs> well, and, and I think they should have a like how to keep things the same, like regression class. Well, I think I have no problem shooting on my alma mater. <laughs> I think, um, <laughs> I think these, I think these majors and concentrations are fantastic. And had there been one when I was there, I probably would have chosen it right but i do think i kind of like it being through the american history angle mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a lot of our folks that send us proposals could have more of a history background mm-hmm. but i also think i like what harvard and other schools are doing in terms of integrating these themes into what others might call more mainstream classes so i think that economists and scientists and educators giving them more information about social impact work and how it can be integrated into these other disciplines, just like we want to integrate, you know, a a greater lens on on race and equity and diversity and a number of other things. I think that 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 kind of cross-pollination is also really important as well. So in addition to the the majors and concentrations, I, I love the work that a lot of institutions are doing to integrate these themes more holistically across the entire curriculum. Uh, yes. Uh, I like that as well. Very well said. As opposed to, uh, and I, there are some good things about SALT, but what I don't like about it is, is that it's an all-new thing. Mm, mm-hmm. It, in fact, is not particularly integrated into like what was already happening at mm-hmm, MIT. Mm-hmm. It's, they hired new people, Got mm. a new office, started mm-hmm. doing new challenges involving new folks, mm-hmm. which was which is their strategy. They're trying to expand the mm-hmm. like, number of people that they can engage with. Uh, and for all I know, there's some some other office that's in, that's that is. I don't know what's on the curriculum at MIT, right? Um, but I've seen that's uh, we we've also partnered with GW, where they're doing both things. They have um, these like public pitch competitions mm-hmm. and venture competitions. Which to me are just sort of strange fundraising grabs. Uh, I've been the judge at, at so many of these um, that I'm I'm no longer I'm not I'm not if anyone's interested. You're looking for judges for your like weird college pitch competition. No, thank you. Uh, I'm sure there's I can I can suggest some other reviewers for you. Um, but um, like, if someone wants to start a social venture and they're an undergraduate or in a graduate school, that's great. And like, let's in fact look at their proposals and everything. But like, w- making it public, mm-hmm. having members from the business community there, like these are re- like 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 any of these are going to succeed, like and like maybe they will, but like statistically, no. <laughs> so let's plan for the and just because you're the business you came up with as an undergraduate or the nonprofit your first nonprofit idea mm-hmm. right wasn't a good one, like does not mean that, in fact you should be rewarded for trying it in the first place. It almost certainly is a bad one. My first like ten nonprofit ideas would mm-hmm. not have worked, and some of them I tried in earnest. Mm-hmm. I know, so I know that they didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I know that they wouldn't work. 
the first idea for Unfundables was pretty bad. I got, I got a lot of good critical feedback mm-hmm. in the beginning and changed mm-hmm. my idea to make it better, right? And that, and the, the, for colleges to provide that, that's very good, right? But like the, the, what I've seen a lot of is basically like Shark Tank was, a, was one of the most popular shows on television. Mm-hmm. Their alumni are in this year. Their students are in this year. And so their very quick idea is it's a Shark Tank on campus mm-hmm. for social change. Mm-hmm. Right? There's probably thousands of those across campus. Some better plan solves very meticulously planned, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and MIT professors are designed and the challenges and everything. Others were just like we're gonna we'll call it Pitch George, and like look, the, the George Washington is wearing sunglasses in the in the in the logo. <laughs> yeah, I, I I totally hear you. I in my experience with pitch competitions has more been in the business school context, in which the the post pictures yeah, the are, graduate school ones are better. They're a little more. They you know, they've got more life experience and more. You know, so I'm I'm all about uh, getting young people engaged and getting them excited. Um, you know, I also love kind of the apprenticeship model, which is more of the path that I took. You know, graduating, finding a social change group that's really well run that inspires you, going there and spending a few years. You know, working your butt off, learning a ton of stuff getting incredible experience so that when you go to graduate school or come up with your own idea, you have a little real world experience and context, just like, you know, starting a private sector venture, you know, you have more experience and context and relationships and network and knowledge to increase the likelihood that that will be successful. This is something very real for folks to learn. A lot of people think they're going to have very quick fundraising success. And like by very quick, I mean within five years. (laughs) Uh, just to be clear in my fundraising career I spent five years uh, entering data into databases taking notes and meetings printing thank you letters signing someone else's name on them I didn't do anything particularly real I had to do that at the end of that five years I knew a lot Mm -hmm. and I was able to start doing some real stuff Mm -hmm. but if I if they had like I wouldn't have been able to raise any money in my first year as a fundraiser Mm -hmm. on my own I didn't know anything and I came from I like I grew up in a college background I knew I had a lot of um I knew a lot more than the average person about how philanthropy worked still like you have this is real work it's real profession yep you gotta do it for a long time there's a lot of training involved and unfortunately a lot of the nonprofits out there that need fundraisers are not gonna be able to provide the training that they that these folks need tough uh tough career to get into Mm -hmm. and again you got this trend of a lot of these um colleges being possibly over encouraging at the idea of starting new social ventures when their graduates should really go work at some of the existing... If they want their graduates to have strong social impacts, to be encouraging them to go work at existing social ventures. This is something I talk about with our clients as well. You know, I, I have a hesitation about encouraging people to sort of build parallel train tracks to the same goal, right? You know, if there's already an organization doing fantastic work about XYZ in community ABC, why create another doing the same thing as opposed to collaborating or looking for synergies uh, with that group? Because, you know... There's no pinch competition for for that. And maybe there should be. Maybe there should be a collaboration pitch competition. Um, But It would be convoluted and that show would not be popular. I I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> Though there might be some innovative funders like listening simple. to this. They like it. I made a 30-second pitch, and then I got a million, and now I'm selling sponges at Walgreens. 
Yeah. That's really simple. But, you know, as you know, uh, these questions are complex. And, and I know you, and I'm not looking for simple solutions. We're looking for real ways to drive real impact, right? Um, so, so that's so, why I like what you were saying about... There are some, there are some arguably simple solutions. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So, for instance, if you, like, want to see a cure for cancer... Like, there are the institutions you should donate to. It's all very straightforward. We Mm -hmm. don't need to spend a whole lot of time (laughs) on your efforts to use your money to, like, aid cancer research. Mm -hmm. It's it's there. And and for many other causes. Yep. Like, like they're there, they're doing the work, and we know who they are to fund, right? It may may be a lot more complicated than, but, like, sometimes it is, sometimes it is simple. Uh, And, in fact, that's one of the things that I think... um, might be frustrating for new for new uh, fundraisers and new philanthropists. Mm-hmm. They're looking to make a splash, and it's actually like, well, you know, what you get to do is swim laps. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> I I hear that, and I I think you're exactly right. And and some of the folks that I work with, the challenge is not um, creating an institution that's doing powerful work in in category A or B. It's figuring out from a personal perspective, what is the cause that they are most interested in? What is the the focus that their family wants to have in terms of their impact? Question one. Then question two, which organization or combination of organizations in that space is driving real change or real change and resonates in the categories they're interested in? And then maybe number three, you know, how do you structure that in such a way that that the the donor finds the meaning on a personal level that they're looking for, um, but none of that is about you know inventing a new cancer research organization because they're great groups that are doing that work. If you were now. to try to, that would be a very silly thing to do. I don't care how good you are at any of it. Starting a new cancer research organization right now would be a very silly thing to do. Yeah, and it would cost a ton of money and take a long time to even and probably catch up. harm the the field of cancer research. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right uh so uh you are a philanthropy advisor uh does that did you when you were in marion did is that what you knew you wanted to be when people said what do you want to be when you uh, grow up well i don't even think i knew that such a thing existed so no um i wanted to be a children's book illustrator when i was my son's age uh books have always been I things remember... Tommy DePaola. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Isn't he from North Carolina? Are you from the South? He, I, he has a connection. I love those books. Those books are incredible. Streganona and others. I, I love books because, you know, we lived in this pretty remote community, but they gave me the opportunity to imagine a world far beyond my front door, which actually is sort of what philanthropy does as well. But the answer to your question is that I wanted to be a children's book illustrator when I was a kid. Well, there's a big connection between literacy and philanthropy, I think. So one it, it, it has always been mm-hmm. uh, one of the large focuses of uh, at least Western philanthropy. Uh, perhaps in the beginning, it was the focus was to, to, to prevent them from learning to read. <laughs> <laughs> it's philanthropy has evolved, right? Uh, so what did you, you you worked you did work with books? You didn't become a child. Can you draw? Is that the problem? Um, <laughs> drawing is not my strongest suit now, though I do enjoy doing it with my son. Um, so I graduated college and, you know, Dave, I didn't know then exactly what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to focus on 
progressive social change. I thought maybe law school, maybe public policy school. And I got a fellowship to the place called the Center for Law and Social Policy. And because it had the word law and the word policy in the name, I thought, perfect, let me go there. Um, and CLASP, that organization, let me say, does incredible work. Um, and I, I developed a huge respect for policy and sound policy and the underpinnings of that from a research perspective. I also discovered, as, as you know, Dave, I'm a fairly sort of extroverted, talkative people person. Writing researching policy briefs was not my personal uh, forte. Um, but I was doing that work, and my roommate at the time, um, a buddy named Dave Green, was a journalist, and he came home and said, hey, you know, I just interviewed this amazing social entrepreneur um, named Kyle Zimmer running a group called First Book. You should work there. And I was like, Dave... I don't tell you how to be a journalist. I've never heard of this first book. Thanks for trying. Um, but but like a good friend, he wouldn't shut up. And he he said, you know, you really got to talk to her. And basically had lunch, uh, fell in love with this social impact model and, and quit my job the next day. So I was at first book for about 18 years altogether. Um, took some time off to go to business school. Uh, worked in the private sector a little bit at BCG and the Coca-Cola company. And then came back. Um, we gave away 165 million books during that time, um, and, uh, uh, build up the social enterprise for that and, and also managed our work with You should change funders. the name to 165 millionth book. <laughs> well, now it's something like the 200 millionth 200 book. Million. Um, every time they give it, they should change, rebrand. That's, it, it, that branding change would be effortless, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Um, is I, I assume it's just called first book because it's snappy. It's not like a specific. Well, it actually it actually comes from a poem. Um, so it's not so much about the first book a child receives. It's it's a poem um, talking about the first book that sort of caught your imagination on fire, and and a big focus of that. Or I still say we a big focus of that wonderful organization is um, you know connecting books to kids that resonate with them. So they have a big focus on. Um, increasing diversity in the publishing industry, uh, increasing representation so that children can not only see themselves in the books that they read, but that little kids in communities like mine that are fairly homogenous can get introduced to kids with stories and backgrounds and experiences very different than their own. So it was a tremendous, a tremendous place. Um, and, and to the sort of apprenticeship point, I learned a great deal during that time. Uh, and for folks who want to hear more about your time, first book, we were recently speaker at our virtual symposium, uh, and we talked a little bit there about what it's, what it's like to actually work at a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, I guess 18 years was enough, right? And you decided you wanted to be a, you're, you're going to be a giving advisor. Yeah, you know, I think, and, and hindsight is twenty twenty. you know, I think I would certainly be lying if I said, you know, as a seven-year-old in North Carolina, I wanted to found a group called Untraditional Philanthropy and do advising. Um, but over the course of that time at First Book, you know, I did learn a lot. I mean, a very successful organization, you know, accolades from, you know, Schwab and Skoll and CGI and case studies at, at Wharton and Yale. And so we had all the sort of accolades, but fundraising was still really, really hard. And, you know, we, and we were doing work with, with big donors and Fortune 500 companies um, and I remember, you know, we'd get a million dollar gift and I'd, I'd throw a sort of freaking ticker tape parade in the hallway. And then I'd go back to my desk and sit down at my computer and realize we needed to do that 
24 more times that year. And, and, you know, af- at the beginning of the pandemic, I, I sort of took about six months and, and was really thinking about what I wanted to do next. And, and I was sort of saying to myself, you know, dang it, like, I'm a privileged white man who went to Harvard and Stanford, and I have friends and senior roles at Goldman and these other banks. And it was still super, super hard for me to raise money. And if it's that hard for me, you know, what about the the black queer woman in Anacostia who's leveraging her GED in amazing ways to run her program who doesn't have access to those conversations? It's sort of a like a Hamilton, like in the room where it happens, awakening. And I I think honestly for a long time, and, and you may have had this experience, like I think when we started doing this work, I kind of separated my connections and and sort of elite ties because I thought that it was more important to sort of focus on grassworks community building and, and working from the ground up. And and I, I had a bit of a realization that, you know, I wasn't bringing my full self to this work because I wasn't engaging these other parts of my personhood. And I was in a unique position to make connections to these large banks and and affluent families and corporations and what might it look like to reimagine philanthropy in those ways by bringing these funders and and social entrepreneurs together in a way that might reimagine some of the power dynamics that had been challenging during those 18 years of first book. Um, Yeah, and uh, so uh, one major similarity between untraditional philanthropy and unfunded list Mm-hmm. Un. Un. First of all. Uh, and there's a couple of these also, I don't know if you know Daniel from Unders Unreasonable Institute. Mm-hmm. So the three of us should get together sometime. That would be the Un... Have a little Un Club. I love it. I love we it. We can have a conference and call it the Unference. <laughs> I just thought that up. <laughs> I, I like it. I do like it. And, and now we should do it. And Un is a part of fun... And fundraising. So there's yes. all kinds so of places a, that many we can go. Interest, there's a lot of wordplay that, that will happen <laughs> at the Unfriends. <laughs> I think people, anyone buying a ticket to the Unfriends, and it'll be expensive. They'll know. They'll be expecting wordplay. <laughs> um, but um, another thing uh, is that you've got, you're, you're maintaining a little pool of experts. Yep. Uh, and uh, I have, uh, so over the years, we've had over 900 uh, people with various expertise uh, read proposals. It's not so much, I kind of shy away from the word expert. Some of them are mm-hmm. obviously experts. Uh, I do think whether you're an expert in something or not, your perspective has value. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we provide, um, right, and, and everybody only has one perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, it mm-hmm. could be rich and deep, but it's one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, we provide people with the opportunity to hear from people who have other perspectives, mm-hmm. which I think is just very, very important if you're going to try to social change you need as much perspective as possible 100 percent. are you all familiar with the myth of tiresias <sighs> i do love Greek he was mythology. the blind advisor to oedipus i yes and and i i love that sort of trope of the 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 blind person being the only one that can see well he is and well there's the, his story <coughs> which they don't think they mentioned in oedipus but like his myth he went to Athena uh-huh. and prayed to be the wisest man in Greece. Ah. So first she transports him to Syria, and he has to live there for seven years as an immigrant who doesn't speak the language. 
And then she transports him back to Greece, where he has to live there for seven years as a woman. So he lives for seven years as a woman. Uh, and then she turns Fantastic. it back into a man and makes him blind. And at this point, he's like, Athena, why you're, what are you doing to me? Why are you doing this? And he said, and she said, well, you wanted to be the wisest person in Greece, and now you are. I love that. And I think it's, I think it's so... And you could see... I kind of have chills. He could predict the future by listening to birds. And I think... That, <laughs> I love that so much because I, I think... you know, he that, had so much perspective. The sounds pers- of the birds would speak and, to him. And, you know, let's be candid. I think that you and I are... For those of you, we're not on video, but we are both white men. We both have brown hair. We both have beards. Like, we're very similar, you know. And for a long time, a lot of the people making a lot of the decisions about a lot of the money that went a lot to a lot of the causes looked like us, you know. And I think untraditional philanthropy is founded on the sort of belief that a diversity of opinions and perspectives is not just additive. It is sort of like opening stakes, so I'm super proud of the fact that 85% of our expert advisors are people of color, women, members of the queer community, um, and they're just freaking rock stars. I'm talking about like Alex Guier, CEO of Donors Choose, Abby Falick, founder of Global Citizen Year, Dr. Catherine Wilkinson. We reviewed we could say one of Abby's purpose. proposals. Exactly. And that's actually, shout out to you all, that's how I met Abby. So oh, really? I, Did you? Were you one of the reviewers? I was one of her. You connect. You listed me as one of her. I reviewers. had to have the report discussion with them, and they showed up to it. Uh-huh. It was the day after they got ten million from Mackenzie's. Exactly. And they still showed up to talk about the like critical feedback on, that, and they were very interested to learning it better, even though they had like ten million dollars. It literally fell on them from the sky. I wouldn't have blamed them if they were like, "Take your feedback and." And that's <laughs> and that is soft, the... Dave. But no, they were very. That was one of the better discussions I've ever had, and it was neat to talk to them the day after that. <laughs> and, and and that's just that the, that's the type of person she is. She yes. and she reached out and, and that's a great resource to be able to like connect to folks like that. Hundred percent. You're and, trying to make social change. And we wouldn't have connected had it not been for for your organization. Cool. And 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 now she's an expert. And now she has recommended other experts like Pretty Christelle, who's the leader of IMAC. Pretty just became a Genius Grant winner. So like. Lest people listening think that these, you know, the world is small. And, and you know, I wasn't reading Abby's proposal because I thought that one day I would create something called traditional philanthropy and she would be an expert, you know, and, and she wasn't looking for anything when she reached out. But a lot of great synergies have come from that. And, and you know, she's one example of, you know, these great leaders. Because I think to your point, Dave, like, yeah, I know a good bit about social impact models and earned revenue models and literacy and education from my time at First Book, but I'm not an expert on women's issues or climate change yep. or, you know, the judicial reform work yep. that needs to be done in our country. But because this world is small and I've been doing this for 25 years, I've developed friends and contacts and people like you who know other people that could create this little consortium of folks for the right philanthropist, this is not for everyone, but for those that are open and curious about learning more, um, it's it's really proving to be pretty magical. Uh, yes. Uh, and just sort of like fundamentally, even long before I started on Funded List, one of my tactics that I use with social change is to first talk to a bunch of people. Yep. I used to call it a listening tour. Mm-hmm. It was my first step for any, for if I'm going to, if I'm, if I have a fundraising goal, 
right? I've been, I've been hired at a new job, right? My first thing at the new job was <coughs> I wanted to talk to you, and I think this is everybody. Yeah. Everybody should do this. Talk to all of the stakeholders because you obviously won't, and you're not going to agree with everybody you talk to, and that because that would be weird. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> and boring. <laughs> Super boring. Leave that place if everyone's all <laughs> saying the same thing. You're certainly not going to make any change there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, uh, and, and obviously you don't know what you don't know. Uh, we, I don't write my own feedback down because I have more than enough evaluators and mm-hmm. I, I get a chance to talk to the folks. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, a, a little bit about a lot of things and, mm-hmm. and, and quite a bit about proposals and, mm-hmm. and, and what will work on stuff. Uh, but I sound very smart in these meetings because I have reports filled with, right, you and several hundred other evaluators. And the, sometimes it's just like, how do you know that much? And I'm, I'm literally just reading what Chandler wrote. <laughs> but thank you. I've delivered the lines well. It makes it sound like I understand them. Oh, but, but there, I mean, there are, we have proposals sometimes that I literally, I, I've read the whole thing and I have no idea what's happening in there. Uh-huh. And we're still able to help them because I have hundreds of experts. There's yep. no, I can't be stumped anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think one of the most surprising, I think your model is likely to work because uh, as you've alluded to, folks that are good at this sort of thing and have this kind of perspective are are interested in sharing it. Yep. Um, and... Um, Certainly, that's that that's a cool model. Um, so, why would a donor hire untraditional philanthropy? Yep, they've got like I'm sitting around. I got money, and I want to donate it. Why I can go to their websites, I can do my GuideStar research. I can Google. It's easier to get your questions answered than ever before. Mm-hmm. A lot mm-hmm. of these places might even answer the phone or respond to emails, especially if I tell them I'm a big shot donor, right? Mm-hmm. So, what is it? You're going like why would I hire? Why would that person hire somebody? I think it's a great question, and and I will say that our model is a little different, and we don't even presume that it's right for everyone, right? I think that that the philanthropists that really mesh with our mindset are a subset of open-minded, curious folks who want to do things differently. Maybe because they've been frustrated in the past with their giving, maybe because they've been doing it for a while and they felt like they've not seen the needle move, maybe because they want to make a change in their work. So I would say it falls into three categories. I'd say number 1, folks want to increase their impact. You know, maybe they want to make avoid making gifts that they will regret or they want to give with confidence um, or they want to move in a new direction. Uh, A lot of these folks have said things to me like, you know, I work with a financial advisor who's fantastic and I pay them because I want to make sure that we're thinking about this really strategically, that we're doing intense due diligence, that we're making these these impact-based decisions with a lot of rigor. And why would I not apply the same thinking to my social impact goals? So I, I I think there's one bucket of people who want... To increase impact, and and we could talk more about that. I think the well, one thing you said in there, I'm very interested in. Why might a donor regret a gift? Well, you know, I think fraud or they're, criminal they're, behavior. They wasted all, it or yeah, whatever. But all, like, all kind. So, so I think one, you know, I, I think there can be both impact ramifications and and even reputational ramifications. So, so. There are some nonprofits that are not doing up and up work and and they're doing bad things or they're doing fiscally irresponsible things and gifts to those groups 
not only don't have the impact that one might have wanted, but they, in some cases, can have reputational damage to the donors, especially if donors have done something in a very visible way. So I, I think, again, just like a private sector investment, you know, you, you want to reach your, your in, in this case, it, it might be bottom line financial results or, or bottom line social impact results, and you don't want to have reputational fallout. So I, I think there are a number of reasons why people wouldn't want to give. So might, might they care who the other donors to a cause are and like learn, like if they don't, I don't like, I, might they regret a gift because they learned that so-and-so who they don't like also gives to that thing? I mean, someone might. That depends on the nature of the not like. I don't mean just like they don't get along socially, but like that person is untoward in some way. Or... Oh, oh. Let's use Jeff, Jeffrey, let's say you've, you've given a donation to First Book and you find out that Jeffrey Epstein gave to the same fund and there he is at the same party with you. It's a, it's a great question. I, you know, um, more and more we have people who are getting, right, or they, they, could, they don't have to be as bad as Jeffrey Epstein, mm-hmm, right? It could, mm-hmm. be, it, it could be racist remarks or, yeah, and I, or, I, some, I, or something else that you find morally abhorrent and there you are standing with them at something that's supposed to be and I, so, supposedly has moral value. I think it's a great question, and I think there are a few categories. I think one is, um, you know, obviously th- their impact risk, right? You know, you make a gift, you think that it's going to have the impact that you want it to. It ends up not for whatever reason, and there could be reputational negative ramifications because of that. Other people, you know, might might give to an organization without sort of fully doing their homework and discover that there's some shady business going on or that, you know, the impact that the organization says is happening isn't happening. And that can come out in very visible ways, in very scandalous ways. And high-profile donors to scandalous organizations suffer reputational damage. And then I think also there can be... Maybe a tertiary point that some folks are concerned with is what I might call guilt by association. You know, maybe there's a person in the world, you know, in, in another conversation, you mentioned Jeffrey Epstein, um, who is a he big... Did, di- he donated to a lot of stuff. Lots of groups. And and I could imagine my clients not wanting, you know, say he was on a board or a highly visible sort of behind the scenes force in an organization which is discoverable, but might not be discoverable to someone who's just doing a quick charity navigator search or something like that. So we actually take that due diligence phase really, really seriously, exactly in the same way that these same clients might be hiring a financial advisor to due diligence. On. So it, it, yeah. there's, there's, it's a little bit fraught with peril, to, especially if, it's, if we're talking about progressive social change. One thing else, I don't want to name any specific organizations but whichever one you think I'm talking about it, it applies mm-hmm. uh, but every time I see a new like progressive liberal group prop up it's generally a matter of time before I hear the anti-semitic statement from someone in their leadership it, that's know, been happening for about 10 years several some some that raised hundreds of millions of dollars don't exist anymore because of that uh, we've read those some of those proposals um and it, it's it's happened enough times that it doesn't seem like a coincidence. Yeah. So if you're a donor trying to get into that sort of thing, like 
And, and Whether you're Jewish or not, that's it can, this this can tank the work. It's true. And and Dave, I don't I don't want to scare people. I it don't could be want... a transphobic comment, or it could be an anti-racist comment, or an anti-immigrant comment, or exactly a lot of other things. And and again, I don't gathering want... all these perspectives together, you run the risk of right. Yeah, and bringing I bringing some toxic perspective into there. Well, you know, I will tell you, you know, um, I will have that stuff in my reports sometimes. Yeah, and one of my experts. People have biases. They totally do, and and that is an example of something that is hard to discern from the outside. So just last week, one of my experts reached out to me, and she was having a conversation with a high net worth person, mm. and they were having an off the record conversation, and the donor said, "You know, my my spidey sense is up about organization X or Y, organization X. I feel like." And, and this donor is a black woman, you know, there's something that I'm I'm just concerned about. And this expert, who is also a black woman, you know, said, let me tell you some behind-the-scenes information about that organization, some stuff that's not going to appear in the annual report, some stuff that I know that I think you should know. And, and this world is small, and the people running these organizations not only know about their organization and not only know about the work that other organizations are doing, they know where some of the bad actors are. And, and hmm. no strategy is foolproof, but I think we purposefully cast a wide net to get a lot of folks who can have input from a lot of perspectives to dramatically decrease the chances of something like that coming up. Um, yeah, so um, this is very interesting. And again, I think it, this all highlights the need to, like, if, you're, if you're, you're planning to do anything seriously, hiring people who know how to do it to help you do it is a, is a useful idea. And accomplishing social change is as serious as anything else. Uh, and I think they like, they may underestimate, uh, you know, some of these perils. Uh, another one, and, and, and this is particularly true for smaller, under-resourced nonprofits, they will sometimes get a reputation, and I've worked with some of them, they will get a reputation for like being a bad place to work. Mm -hmm. the, the underlying, and it's true that it is, uh, the underlying reason is because they don't have enough money to like provide the support and payment mm -hmm. to the staff. Mm -hmm. and so it, and, But the needs of the clients or whoever they're helping are all still real and there. Mm -hmm. And so like bosses yell, deadlines need to be met. And it becomes it sometimes becomes a stressful environment, and people and that can be known, right? Mm -hmm. And that boss can get a very bad reputation for being a bad manager. When in reality, he was never trained to be a manager, mm -hmm. <laughs> and he has he's upset and stressed because or she because she's or or they uh, because they're doing uh, far more work than any reasonable person could. Mm -hmm. The natural thing that happens to people in that position is they start to suffer, uh, and sometimes that suffering manifests outward. Mm -hmm. Right, and then a donor might be like, "Well, I don't want to give there because that's I've heard that they mistreat the employees, and it's not a great place to work." When again, the underlying cause for all of that is they didn't have enough money. Mm -hmm. So you're gonna not you're gonna deny the solution to the problem because of these reputational things. And I think just all the more reason to have an expert and the ability to talk to folks with perspective, so that you can like these are complicated questions. Yeah, just because you've heard X Y Z's like got a bad reputation, right? That might just be because they're not really focused on the reputation management. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The organizations that have the best reputation are not doing the best work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're yeah. focused on their rep. They're very good at their reputation management. And I have PR staff. And a lot of our donors want to give to the groups that are making the most impact, as opposed to 
doing the best marketing, huh. right? Which is not to say that some groups doing incredible marketing aren't making a great impact. But I think I think your point is really important because take that organization that has been in a consistently resource constrained environment for years, and that's had effects on the morale of the leadership and the staff. You know, my approach would be to have a candid conversation with the donor and say, look, there, there are two sides to this coin. Like, if you want a straight shot, direct impact gift, you know, with immediate results on this key performance indicator, this might not be the organization for you. We might do another organization that's sort of more robust in this category. But we could also say, look, they've got tremendous potential and this is the last stumbling block mm -hmm. and they don't have enough money because general operating gifts are so limited and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to, to have the sort of career development work and, uh, you know, yep. stress management or, or whatever it might be. But that is solvable with money. And maybe and we make a special... Sector, this is like what they look for. 100%. And the donor side, they're like, well, I shouldn't donate because of the... But um, as an investor, like looking for a return, you would be you that same outfit would look like a diamond in the rough, and that's like what there's lots of them. That is, that's their strategy. One hundred percent. And they would say we're going to give a gift, and we're going to earmark a certain part of this gift for you know personal coaching for the CEO. Well, he needs an executive coach, right? Yeah, or she needs this they or need that a, they skill. Need a, they're not doing. They need a PR team. Uh, so why else would someone hire a donor advisor to give their money away? Absolutely. Well, I think you know, one reason we've been discussing is increasing your impact. And there are lots of ways to do and think about that. You know, the second thing that we see a lot of is people who want to build meaning, connection, purpose in their lives. So sort of the first category is about helping make the world a better place by sort of progressive social change, re a certain issue area. The second is much more personal. You know, a lot of times these are entrepreneurs who've built companies and worked really, really hard for a long time. And maybe they've had an exit situation and they are thinking about what they want to do with their time and what meaning they want to have. And, and I think about this in a few ways. I think one, you know, how can you do more than write a check? You know, a lot of these clients have significant professional experiences. They've built technology companies or communications companies. Are there ways that they can help these organizations with technology or communications questions they might be wrestling with? And there are lots of ways to do that. Um, a, a big part of that, as you know, is by connections and introductions to others in the space. Um, I think another thing that we see a lot of are folks who are interested in sort of transitioning from donor to advocate. So how can they, you know, be an advocate for this cause, for this organization? And that can take a lot of forms, you know, up to and including board membership. Um, and I think, I think too, you know, meaning is really important. I, I've spoken to people and, and asked about their philanthropy and they've said things like, well, we've given $5 million away. As opposed to saying, you know, we've we've helped increase literacy rates by 10% in our community. Or, you know, I personally, um, my life is richer and more fulfilling because of the work that I do with this organization. Let me tell you about that. Um, so I think that's one big category. And the last big category, and increasingly so, is I think about engaging family members and sort of 
thinking about one's legacy. And you and I were talking about that, the legacy part, a little bit earlier in the sort of reputational section. <laughs> but I think this is a big thing. You know, we're looking at, at probably the largest intergenerational wealth transfer that's that's happened in our country. And people, you know, people have different points of view about when or if or exactly how that's going to happen. But I, I don't believe it. <laughs> But telling me about, just to be clear, they've been telling me about that my whole life, and all that happens is that the number keeps getting bigger. I, I do hear that. I do hear that. And it's not transferring. And in many cases, even being held on to after death. <laughs> There's a really great book that you should read, The Rising Power of the American Dead. The Rising Power of the American Dead. The dead control more assets than they ever had, almost as much as the living. I do. I think it's a really interesting They're question. They yeah. shouldn't control any assets. I agree. I agree. Um, I have all the respect for what they did when they were alive and everything, and I'll be quiet in the cemetery, <laughs> nice and respectful and everything. But they don't; they shouldn't. Their funds should no longer be like totally. <laughs> abiding by their wishes. And I think the good news is, you if know, only because they can't change their minds after with new they're information. gone. Yeah, and a lot of families are thinking about that. So, so a lot of families are saying, you know, how do we develop a personal or a family? philanthropic plan and and as you probably know from this conversation as i know you know dave i i am big on planning and strategy and structure so thinking through that plan or approach maybe it's a year-long plan maybe it's 18 month plan maybe it's a 10-year plan maybe it's a 40-year plan um i think thinking about the long term is also really important you know i don't have a lot of success with folks who come to me and say, you know, we want to change X or Y overnight. You know, a lot of those of us who have been working in the field for a long time understand that that change takes time. And so, especially if you're looking at, at entrenched systems. So we do do a lot of that long-term planning. And I think the third thing here is engaging younger generations. You know, second and third generation philanthropists, we were talking about this a little bit ago, um, it's a big question and different families do it in different ways. Some, some bring the whole group in and, and decide on their focus areas together and their, their organizations that they're going to support together. Others uh, sort of segment and give each family member a little piece of money to enable them to look at their, their philanthropy independently. So we work with folks on both sides of that question. So I, I think those are three things that we're seeing a lot of folks want to talk about and that we're doing a lot of work in. The intergenerational thing is good. Uh, and certainly, definitely important. I've heard from other folks. And uh, just to, to add in some extra perspective on this, mm -hmm. I have talked to some of the big investment houses mm -hmm. and asked them why they're in, why they get into philanthropy advising. Mm -hmm. And they've, in some cases, been, and I appreciate it, uh, quite honest and candid, mm -hmm. that they want to keep the funds in the firm, and giving philanthropy advising is useful, particularly on this intergenerational <coughs> aspect. Yep. Right. The right bank of the, call the bank of David. Uh -huh. right? I have this hundred million dollar client, and he's got hundred million dollars invested. Obviously, he won't live forever. When he passes, I would love for as much of that hundred million dollars to stay at the bank of David as possible. Right. Yep. And I know that you know. Jimmy Jr., right? Very interested in causes because the next mm -hmm. generation is very interested in causes. So mm -hmm. I start, I'm like, oh, I'm a philanthropy expert now. 
<laughs> and I sh- I throw right, the Bank of David Next Generation Leadership Conference and and invite fancy celebrities. And then the kid gets to think he's involved in philanthropy. He's more mu- he's more likely to keep the funding at my bank. And in fact, there might be some good gifts that get made yep. along the way. But I've heard it from the top of some organizations that there's a very narrow focus here for getting into the work from that. If it's a large bank doing this, it's wealth management. Any wealth management firm wants to manage the largest fund possible. So they're collecting clients with as much money as possible. And if you are an ultra high net worth individual, or even a high net worth individual, yep. or in fact, honestly, anyone with any amount of extra excess wealth, mm-hmm. you're probably considering making some donations. So anyone helping to manage that wealth, it should be, it should be part of it. And sometimes they do have, in fact, actual philanthropic experts. Yep. Uh, I one of my favorite things to do is to, is to whenever I see you can look up their LinkedIn and I try to look like where did you where did any of your philanthropy expertise come from? And it's just they were to the bank, they were to the bank, they were to the bank. I <laughs> I totally hear what you're saying. Some, they were working in sustainability for a very long time, and then at one point it became the foundation. Yep, and they, and, they were like a different job, a lateral shift possibly. Right, and the, uh, everything that got the work seems to be the same, but now it's called the foundation, and it's filling it's, it's philanthropy that they do. You know, I I really appreciate that, and and I hesitate to call myself a philanthropy expert. I really think of myself as a person who spent their life focused on leading social change efforts, and and while I work with a lot of banks and a lot of financial advisors. You know, I'm not a financial advisor, so I am not the person that's going to tell a client how much money they should give away or even necessarily the the financial structure or financial vehicle that they should use, whether it's a donor-advised fund or a charitable under trust, whatever it might be. You know, I, I can help people think through that, but typically for us, um, the individual or the family and their financial advisor will sort of make those decisions. And then when they say... Now we need an expert to think about how to make the most good in the world with this money. They call us. And, and, and that is sort of liberating because we can focus purely on the impact. And process-wise, it's somewhat similar to how the ultra-high net worth individuals of the past did things. Mm-hmm. They took care of, their, of managing their money first. Yep. With their banker or whoever it was. Back then they were just called bankers, mm-hmm. not their wealth managers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, but they took care of that first and they figured out how much and usually set up a foundation with a writing a check to, to my own name foundation, right? Mm-hmm. And then put, and maybe if it was big enough, hired a professional to run the foundation, mm-hmm. which is, this is, now there's different vehicles. It's yep. probably an advised fund at the wealth manager. Yep. Sim- to my earlier point, they want all the money there. So they don't want the money to leave the corpus to go set up a foundation. They can and, and there's advantage to having them continue to manage it, mm-hmm. than se- separating them, uh, right? Because that means sell. Sometimes that means splitting up stock groups and other things. And fam- some of these families have stock not readily available, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and other interesting assets like that, right? And having it all there, there's some benefit to that for sure. And also, not really what I do. Yeah, I, like you, I would prefer to hear after they've figured out how much they can give away. That's that's I. Would love to be involved in the conversation once you've figured out a number, right? Yep. And the process used to be very clear. And in fact, it would, the guidance was like, if it's at least a million dollars, then you go through the trouble of setting up a private foundation. 
uh, which is paperwork with the IRS and a five percent minimum, and for a long time that's what our and our their costs associated with that. I actually don't know anyone that set up a private foundation. Yeah, there's some costs, but like if you if you've got a million dollars, give away the cost is not is mm-hmm. not not mm-hmm. negligible and a good way to give things away. As a fundraiser, I liked that. Mm-hmm. Those their tax returns were public. I could look up what their grants were. Yep. I could do my research. Yep. I knew who to approach. Right, they had to list their board members. It was like I was able to do my job early in my mm-hmm. career. Mm-hmm. Right, most of your newer vehicles aren't that transparent. They're very difficult to research. Uh, lots of lots of donors are giving them individually, not accepting proposals at all, not taking meetings. That stuff's all very difficult. And one of the reasons we really want to, uh, while we're interviewing giving advisors, and why I'm choosing giving advisors that I believe can be candid about it, right. Is that that's that's the thing that's why we want to leave the door open yep. an open door philanthropy mm-hmm. uh, how are they right um, not everybody can set up a huge foundation mm-hmm. and hire a huge staff and read proposals from all over the world 100% if you can if you've mm-hmm. got a billion if you like this is why Bezos just says he's going to give all his money away cool <laughs> <laughs> right set up I'm happy let's show me the paperwork sir mm-hmm mm-hmm <laughs> Mm-hmm. You can put it into a fund and put bylaws there and and do this now instead of signing some meaningless pledge mm-hmm. or like indicating that you will sign a pledge, which mm-hmm. is all he needs to do to get the media coverage. There's probably people in the world who now who think he's already given all his money away, right? Also, I think last week he gave a hundred million dollars to Dolly Parton, which we could have probably do a whole episode. I'm a huge fan, but you shouldn't give her a hundred million dollars. That's that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Dolly Dolly does incredible. She should immediately donate it to like SEIU or someone trying to do unionization efforts. I think she's going to be. I'm excited (laughs) to see what she does because she's so freaking thoughtful. Uh, But I I hear you. I totally hear you. You shouldn't be able to get. You shouldn't be able to work on your own like bad public image by donating money like huge amounts to a celebrity. That that stuff. And some donor advisor probably told him, "Look, Dolly's really when it comes to philanthropy, Dolly's really like." She's a celebrity. She has this huge following. Like they probably did studies on like all the people who hate Jeff Bezos. They like they're more likely. This is the best person to do this to, right? He. That's how these folks make decisions at that level. Um, you're not like that hundred million dollars didn't come in your way, unless you're part. Unless you are able to help him with his reputational issues, uh, right? And there's also like, and I don't. I I have spoken to many recipients of funding from Mackenzie Scott and others who make. Their decisions behind closed doors, where I've and I've never had the opportunity to like talk to them. I can only imagine how they're doing these things, but I have to imagine that since they're not do- talking directly to donors before the gifts, mm-hmm. some of this has to do with what we were talking about earlier. The, who are the best marketed programs? Well, I think Metzger's getting. And if you look at their li- at at anyone who gives money that way, it's probably going to be a list of pretty mar- well marketed programs with good social media and good branding and. I, I think that's part of it. Though I have been impressed by McKinsey Scott's work, and I, like you, I've never been in that room where those discussions happen. But, you know, not all of her, her programs have been super, super well-known. And, and I theorize that there is probably a sort of series of behind-the-scenes due diligence things that are happening. I mean, I know that I get calls, and the, the experts I work with get calls, from I'm not speaking about her specifically, but and you, I'm sure you get these calls as well. Many you know? people get call, and they, like, I've been told that like it was it wasn't out of the blue. It mm-hmm. always gets reported like it was out of the blue, but all of them were like, no, we heard like someone called and asked some questions, and there was there was always like a few steps. Um, 
and then but there is always the, the my other reason why I think it's marketing related is there is always like a substantial press effort every time there's a round of giving there, right? I mean, there's some people. Some people give without issuing a press release, and I. And yeah, I don't get even, totally, large, even large gifts. Totally does. And I, I <laughs> feel like most of the press releases that I've seen, and I don't claim to have exhaustive knowledge, have been from the uh, Fun Dead organization as opposed to being from. Yes, but that's. Stuff. We're giving you a gift. Who? Uh, you will obviously be issuing who, the press release. Who knows? Who knows what goes along with that? I have a lot of reason to believe that, it's a, that the press release comes pre written when the check arrives. Yeah, and I, I have no knowledge about that. No, and there's but, and that's that's a very good PR strategy. Uh, Forbes thirty under thirty. Yep. I mean, I certainly if I got a gift, all these people are going to tweet that they got onto the award. Yeah. Right? And in fact, Forbes it's not that they require to, but Forbes does say like, here's the template for the tweet you can write. Mm-hmm. Like they're they're this is obviously what they want you to do, mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. happens, and it gets what the main benefactor of that list every year is Forbes. Yeah, I, I <laughs> not the nine hundred people on the thirty under yeah. thirty. Just to be clear, there's nine hundred people on that list of thirty. <laughs> Though I I hear all that, Dave, and I I think I, I think, think that, I, I, my real the core question though, right, is there's if you're giving money away, there's some sort of process. You yes, get, maybe you're even maybe you are literally throwing darts. Yep. at the wall, that would be a process. Our process is I throw darts at a wall and I yep. give the grant to whatever land. Like there's a process. Your process probably sucks and is ad hoc, right? And last minute. And maybe you don't read all the materials. Like that's a, mm-hmm. a lot of the processes have that going on. Mm-hmm. There's some really great ones, right? Yep. Um, oh, there's a, and I have never heard of a perfect philanthropic right. process. Not even close. Yeah. All of them will either like you'll 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 tend towards people you know or the issues that are closest to you, or the like best marketed things, or like the th- or right in. Like the things that make you feel the fanciest, right? Mm-hmm. It's we like being kissed up too, right? Uh, but like, ha- like I assume some of the of hiring an advisor is like, what will my process be? When when do my checks go out? Will I read proposals, right? Like if we're doing our own research, what does that re- does, what, does, what does that look like? Will mm-hmm. I use a rubric of some kind? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I, I, is there is that up to them as well? Is is that up to them as well? Um, Talk, like, talk me through the process yeah. stuff. Well, yes. Let, let me say one last thing about Mackenzie Scott, and then let's talk about process. Sure. And I think they do connect. I think one thing that she is doing incredibly well that I hope more philanthropists follow in her footsteps is doing robust due diligence. And, and none of us know exactly how that happens, right? Um, and then she makes general operating gifts. I think that's really important for people to hear and realize. She's not um, micromanaging the process. She's picking leadership teams and organizations that she believes in. She's saying, I trust your work, and I want you to go forth and do more of that. And I, I think that is a trend in philanthropy whose time has come. And we, we talked about multi, uh, multi-year multi general operating gifts quite a bit during the symposium yes, for folks yes. who want to listen. Yep. And one of the things we mentioned there, so uh, she has so much money that she can do that yep. again and again. Yep. Most philanthropists will run out of money <laughs> giving uh-huh. away $10 million in general operating at a clip, right? 
multi-year and, and committing to that much, right? Yeah. Like, and so there's some reason for, right, in, and by resource constrained, I might mean like less than a billion dollars, mm-hmm. right? They may be nonetheless looking to have substantial impact with their mere 400 million, yep. right? And yep. they may want to consider, like if you if you want Alzheimer's cured, right, you'll want to make sure you're giving it to, to a researcher mm-hmm. <laughs> with, mm-hmm. some prom- with some promise. Mm-hmm. And you may want to restrict it in some ways. Yep. Right. And it, and and you should think, make sure they've covered their operations because that won't cure Alzheimer's either if the lights aren't on. <laughs> exactly. Right. But if you don't like, the, there's some reason to if you're looking for a specific outcome to ask for that outcome when you give them the money. I agree with that, and I think too, and I do want to get back to your process question, but you know, mm-hmm. I know when when we were running. And I've, I've been on the... What's related? Generally, that's a process it's tactic. totally... And she is giving... And I would expect behind the research folks to be giving... Like, people who gave that way historically, it's been restricted sometimes. Absolutely. And so I, this is... That's what's new. Like, giving behind closed doors is not new. Right. <laughs> but, but, but an increased focus on general operating, I think, is... And I, I feel like when I started this work 25 years ago, general operating gifts were almost like a dirty word and people would be proud... Donors would sometimes be proud... That their gift oh, it was, was a best 100% practice at one point. Restricted. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and so that's like, something that. You, you don't give to anyone if they have operating expenses. Like, I've heard people say that. Right. Like, I don't understand why nonprofits have operating expenses at all. And, I've heard people say that out loud. And, you know, and we would, <laughs> sometimes groups would say to us, like, they oh, can, you know. They can get office space donated. They can get this donated. Why don't they just go to, like, I have a law firm do it pro bono. They'd say the silliest dumbest and, things you know like we, we live in the world and everything costs money we had a staff of 90 and inflation and we can't pay them in Housing. hugs or donated office right, furniture um so so i think and i know from doing this for 25 years that the general operating funds that we raised were the most critically important and the very hardest to fundraise for so i think this this shift in dynamic is really important so in terms of process and and obviously Every donor is different. Every approach is different. So I, and I'm trying to be as helpful as I can to your question because it it is quite broad. Um, but I, I think there's a process for choosing your strategy, and then there's a process for implementing that strategy. That is, there's sort of a a process that an advisor and a donor go through to figure out what the strategy will be, and then there's a process for the nonprofits to receive the money, right? And I could talk about both of those. Um, I, I think that the, the, the thing I'll say about the first is, you know, some philanthropists have a very high desire to get deep in the weeds and review very closely every proposal that comes in. Others will say, you know, here are the parameters that I'm focusing on. These are the concepts that are important to me. These are the impact goals that that I care about. And could you do an initial screen and make a recommendation? And I'll choose from a group of four instead of a group of unlimited number, right? Um, so there, there's a lot of stuff that can go into that. And, you know, nonprofits can interface with that process in a lot of ways. So when I was running a nonprofit and running fundraising, it was super frustrating to me not to understand what was going on behind those closed doors. So I think one thing that I'll say is regardless of what your process is, I really encourage donors to be very candid and straightforward about it. So to say, for example, 
We are not taking unsolicited proposals. We are doing our own research. Please don't reach out to us. Sort of a don't call us, don't, we'll call you. Yes. I, I didn't like that answer as a nonprofit because I wanted to be yep. in the conversation. But I much preferred that answer to no answer, in which case I might have spent hours writing a letter to that organization that would never read it. You know, and This has come up on the show many times. And as far as I can tell, there's generally consensus around this. Uh, and despite there being the consensus, we don't really, we're not acting the way that we all agree that we should. Uh, one, so philanthropy is, is uh, the, do, the realm of the do-gooder, right? Mm-hmm. And we want to feel good about what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, negative and critical things are often like, doesn't it seems inappropriate, right? Because this is, we should all be very mm-hmm. happy and... Mm-hmm. Right and and supportive and, and and great right so for me I'm giving critical feedback I sometimes I tell people what they're doing wrong mm-hmm. and like yeah. I'm the first person to ever to like most people would never dream of telling some unfunded nonprofit like what are they doing wrong mm-hmm. right like seems like they're kicking somebody while they're down but they do uh, they do generally want that one of the most common questions I hear from them right are like how do I approach like I think this philanthropist has and I've been hearing this my whole life ever like the moment I find out some people find out I'm a fundraiser. <laughs> right, long before on funded list. Sometimes they have, they know this one person. They read an article. Yeah, they know he cares about this issue. Maybe it even said like he's donating to those causes. Right. Uh, one of the first things I raised money for was youth rights. And Steve Wozniak once in like 1984, like briefly mentioned that he thought the voting age should be 16. Mm-hmm. And my boss there was like, "We need to go after Steve Wozniak because he said this in this article 20 years ago." I'm like, "That doesn't sound like. Do you know him?" Do you know anybody? Do you know anybody who thinks he knows him? Like, if we run into him, it's great that we know that he said this. Yep, (laughs) yep. And I think that's really all we can do here. He does not have a foundation. There's no official process to approach. There's really there's like no realistic strategy for meeting Steve Wozniak. I I, (laughs) so we need to move on to something that we can actually do. And that and and again, the number one question is for me is I want this. I I need to. I would like to be able to approach this donor. They've come to me specifically because they think Dave will be able to help me connect to this person. Yeah. Sometimes I could. I might actually know that guy and mm-hmm. making the introduction would be useful. And I don't because I know what their process is and that they don't fund this thing. Yep. I And in the answer, they don't. And they're like, they, they're really all, they think it's that I'm the key. All I got to do is this intro. And then, of course, they'll be able to convince them. And they won't. They need to go and find something, a, a, something that is a fit. I, I have they're, they're trying to play tennis on the basketball court, and it doesn't matter how good you are at tennis. I I completely agree. <laughs> I I had a call like that yesterday. I think you're not allowed to have a racket out there. You're just gonna foul every time. Yeah. For so for the youth development organization that desperately wants to talk to Steve Wozniak, and I realize this is a, an old example. I agree with you that that is not necessarily the best strategy. The answer is not to submit an unsolicited grant proposal or an unsolicited letter of inquiry. It's just not, friends. If you are bound and determined to approach Stephen Wozniak, I would spend time thinking about who do I know or who on my board or who on our organization might well, McKenzie, know There's him. lots of people out there. They're like, Mackenzie Scott can make all our dreams come true. And she can. Yep. And, and like, So naturally, they're trying to figure out, trying to figure it out. And, you know... I worked at First Book for 18 years, and if I had a dollar for every person that suggested that we reach out to Oprah, 
Yeah. We wouldn't oh, yeah, have yeah, had yeah, to do yeah, any yeah. more fundraising. You know? Um, so, you know, there are ways... We get, we get comments in the reports sometimes. They're like, have you considered applying to the Gates Foundation? <laughs> so, you know, there are... There oh, are, huh. Thank Bill, you. Bill, is he a philanthropist? <laughs> so there, <laughs> there are ways... Yeah. There are ways to work your network to see if you know someone who knows someone to have a conversation, exactly as you mentioned. Though, even if you have a conversation, that's not going to necessarily change their funding strategy to include you in it. What I would say to those folks is very similar to what you said. I think you're fundamentally thinking about the question backwards. So instead of thinking about how can I get to this funder that doesn't know me or my work, I would think who knows me and my work that might be a funder. You know, like if you're a local nonprofit organization, you rent your office space from someone, presumably. You purchased internet and phone and power from other providers. You you buy your food from local restaurants. You provide services to schools or mm -hmm. shelters or whatever that you know are connected to the US government. There are already stakeholders in your world who are deeply familiar with the life-changing work that you're doing and can speak to that from a firsthand experience. So, you know, I've seen groups do an exercise where they kind of map out all of their touch points in a community or in a state or in a country and then sort of cross-reference that with who among these are funders. We buy all of our, you know after-school program supplies from Walmart and Costco. Is there a local Walmart or Costco community giving fund that we might apply to? We've been, we've been pro purchasing our materials from them for 10 years, and we have this great record of success. And, and that can just spiral on and on to utilities providers, gas yep. companies, all kinds of folks. So I think a lot of folks think that they might not know funders, and they actually do. You know, what's important, I think most people, even people who don't have excess wealth, donate money. Right? Yeah. Especially in this country. And we are a little bit of a celebrity-obsessed culture. And so we often have a tendency to think to go, to, to really go to the very top. And where there is a lot of coverage of these folks uh, and their big flashy gifts. There are, like, just billionaires, there's thousands of billionaires, mm -hmm. right? but, like, exclude them. You're probably right. not ever going to meet, let's forget about it for a second. There's like an untold number of people with hundreds of millions, tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. Right? And quite frankly, having nine hundred million dollars doesn't make you famous. Right. Right. But it does mean you can you you can solve all of <laughs> all of a nonprofit's problems just as easily as someone with like a trillion or whatever ridiculous amount these folks have. It's hard to keep track. The numbers keep going up. It's so true. And <laughs> and these organizations. But in your own community, one of the things I, I mention a lot is a lot of times they're founding this nonprofit in San Francisco, D.C., or New York, but they're like from a town. Who's the richest person in your town? They're probably pretty proud of the fact that somebody from like their high school is making it big and like doing something on a cause and might be good for. It's, right? it's it might be all good about those authentic connections. And that's something connections. you can get to. You, a cold submission to him might work. A hundred percent. He's not Oprah. He's not getting. He didn't have to hire people as gatekeepers to keep like to say no. keep folks away from them. I, I think the other thing to look at is your volunteer base. If you're a volunteer-based organization, like should, there should be some way for people to volunteer so you can meet people interested. Oh, I mean, How, all of my donors volunteer and read proposals first. I've never had anybody exactly before they. And then if you you maybe you send an email out to all of your volunteers to say like, hey, look, 
We're looking at community and family foundations in our area if you happen to know anyone. And then all of a sudden, you've got someone who can authentically say, look, I have personally volunteered with this organization for five years. I've seen firsthand the power of X, Y, and Z. And I want to urge you personally to consider this. So I, I think that because so many social enterprises and nonprofits have been in such a resource-constrained environment for such a long time, they assume that they don't have these connections, and they're often more there than they first imagine. Um, yes. Uh, so, uh, we've talked about uh, quite a bit, and you were, uh, we also had you for a while at the virtual symposium, So, and you are an evaluator with Unfunded List, uh, and uh, a verbose one. Right, so people have uh, who engage with us, lots of opportunity to hear your perspective, which is very valuable to folks. I'm gonna ask just a few more questions, um, and we, we touched on this a little bit, but I want I'd like to hear a nice full answer. Uh, right, so once we've chosen at some point in this process, we're choosing an issue, right, mm -hmm. like climate change or or some other issue, right, and you've talked a little bit about, right, um, the things they can do beyond the donation. Yep. Right. Like what? Are, and for a long time, for I had to be shied away from political advocacy, mm -hmm. going down to the like getting like tried to keep those things separate from each other. But that's they are kind of intertwined. Mm -hmm. And in general, lots of times, what the government is doing is figuring out like what will they fund versus what will philanthropy fund. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the only other instance of the term unfunded list being used is government programs listing things that made the criteria, mm -hmm. but they didn't have the allotment from Congress. Yep. Right. If you Google unfunded list, it's me and a bunch of like unfunded, but worthy government programs yep. that, 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 that the allotment wasn't there. Um, so like what is, if, what is our response over the next century as we and the future generation gives away this 30 trillion or 50 trillion or 100 trillion if it ever gets handed down, right? What's the like beyond the philanthropic process, how, how do they engage? Because it's a crowded world. There's lots of people screaming about issues. It's probably not to just go to Twitter and post. Yeah. I mean, a, a couple things come to my mind. Uh, I think asking ourselves what we, what we can do to decrease the problems in the first place is, is the place that my mind goes. So thinking about from an environmental perspective, what can we do, not only in our home, own homes, but as... You know, I, I referenced Xander's letter to President Biden, you know, as active participating members of a demo democratic society, what can we do? What choices are we making with our with our money in terms of the products that we buy, the companies that we support? All of this, as you know, is connected together. Um, and I, I think the other thing that I just always have to say in this conversation is, you know, check ourselves to try to anticipate what we don't know. You know, I think about this, especially with regard to representation in terms of decision-making. You know, it's a lot of pressure. I'm feeling pressure to answer this question now because I'm one guy and it's a big question. You know, a more, the, the way untraditional philanthropy would answer this is, you know, I'd send this question out to our team of 40 experts who include all of these diverse people from all of these diverse perspectives. And I would invite them to, give me each two or three suggestions, and that answer would be so much more holistic than anything I can come up with right now. Which, but both... at, the very, at the very level, certainly there's uh, funders of an issue yeah. have some responsibility beyond the check. 
I think so. If you want to go out, especially if you want to go out there and say, "Hey, I'm solving climate change," you need to be doing something other than just writing checks to organizations. I, I mean, I there's you should, some you should the some, best way to solve it would be to do additional things. And there's some people who can't you can't continue to vote for climate change denying politicians. Yes, no matter what you're, how much you're donating. Because there's only so much the philanthropy sector is going to be able to do on many issues. Mm-hmm. We will need our friends in government. Yeah. One th- and I've had the chance to meet a few senators. Mm-hmm. And almost always, and it's probably because of who I am, but I almost always talk about a foundation with them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are aware of the foundations and the big donors in their area. Mm-hmm. Whether, and they, that's obviously they need their political fundraising, but that's quite a bit different world, mm-hmm. using from different corpuses. And individually, it's much like an individual can write huge check to causes mm-hmm. they can't write to campaigns uh and they and there's a they your voice will ring out quite a bit if you're a considerable local donor supporting nonprofits in the area where that sen- u.s senator lives like they're gonna hear about your concerns and if you don't say anything then they're gonna hear something about somebody else's concerns yeah and people are and there's, gonna be people, wheels. there's gonna be people talking mm-hmm. uh, our motto at unfunded list is listen learn speak uh, and I do think for a very long time, philanthropy sat and listened and learned. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> and, and then eventually someone was like, can we have some impact, please? And then, and the, and have been trying to speak more, but it, but that, that's, you, you, it's, I get criticized for speaking too much. <laughs> a lot. Right. And in my defense, I'm like, well, maybe you don't speak enough. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't have to. There's an awful lot of problems and I don't really hear a lot of chirping about some of them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is why I find the need to talk so much. Um, absolutely, like uh, especially if you're funding something that has opposition. Climate change has like there's people who don't think it's real. Mm-hmm. So it's not enough to just go out and say, "Oh, I'm I'm, I'm very concerned about climate change. I want to fund it." Right? Yeah. Right. At the very least, you can you can follow the lead of a how old is Andrew? He's seven. He's seven, and he can do something about it. Yep. So you're a big shot, hot shot donor in your community. You can do something about it too. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Uh, and that might even involve hiring an additional advisor or consultant. Mm-hmm. These folks, you can hire, you want a law passed to benefit your business, you hire a lobbyist. But if you want a law passed to like protect the world, you don't. We don't necessarily consider doing that. Although we did once read a proposal that was about that. Someone wanted to raise money to like actually pay lobbyists to work on real causes. Uh huh. Uh huh. It was. It was a good idea. I hope he still. I hope he still. I hope what feedback help was helpful to him, uh, and I hope this episode has been helpful to the people listening. Uh, two more questions: What are you most excited about in philanthropy? Um, I really do think that sort of a new era of philanthropists, or maybe donors who don't think of themselves as philanthropists, are getting engaged, and I think that. There's an increased desire to sort of reimagine the power dynamic between the funders and the funded. And I think that that power dynamic is something that's overdue to change. Now, I'm obviously super aware of the money that funders have and how critically important that is to nonprofits and social enterprises. And so is our whole society, right? But I think I'm advocating that there's also a great deal that donors can learn, can learn from leading social entrepreneurs, things that can help them do their work more effectively, um, become better, more effective board members, a lot of things that can begin to 
level out, if not equalize that dynamic. Because here's the thing that happens. If you have a power dynamic that is significant, the person without the power is less able to be candid and honest, especially if they have bad news. Yeah. Um, and so I know for a long time I would spend a lot of time being truthful in the reporting that we did, but presenting that truth in the most palatable way possible and presenting negative aspects in the most honest but but palatable way possible. And first of all, it just takes a freaking long time to spend so much time articulating yourself that way. And then we'd have a few donors who would just be super candid and say like, look, gosh, tell me the biggest thing that you're struggling with right now. Tell me the thing that keeps you up at night. And those conversations, which usually need to be opened by the funder, I believe, created a space in which I could be candid and honest and real and say, look, oh my goodness, we've got a big problem with our, I don't know, email communication system that's managing our relationship with all of our recipient groups. And let me tell you how much better the world would be for our organization if we could fix that. And then you're in a very different conversation. So I, I would say in summary, hmm. reimagining the dynamic between the funder and the funded to encourage candor and transparency as a way to dramatically increase impact. There, you're, uh, right before I found it on Funded List, there were many things that inspired me to do it. Uh, and in particular, there was one thing that I've heard from successful fundraisers, I've heard some version of this many times, right? Basically, I will do, they pay the bills, so I will do what they say. Mm -hmm. I've heard very impactful nonprofit leaders say that about their donors mm -hmm. in a like jokingly way, but I've heard it enough times. Yeah. There's, there's a kernel <laughs> of truth there. And, and, and there's one particular instance. Uh, I was on a tour of a, of a museum, and it was, we were on a, a thing that was funded by a foundation. And, they had, and, there was, and we were given the tour by like one of the leading researchers in that field who was there because he had, felt he had to be because the person funding his research was making him give the tour. He wasn't the tour guide. And his resentment was clear vocalized mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right and the first thing he said hello i'm here i'm the leader in this field uh this is demeaning to me to have to give you little shits a tour like he was insulting to us the entire time uh and but he had to do it <laughs> and i just remember thinking like that's not he's cap he's a talented capable researcher he shouldn't feel this way mm -hmm. if you if the funder truly wants to see this research done well should not be making Yes, can make him feel that way, clearly. Yeah, <laughs> totally. But like, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Uh, so I am excited about that as well. Mm -hmm. I would also say that like, not just because someone's fundraising doesn't mean we should listen to everything that they say. Correct. But obviously. Like, totally correct. It's, it's uh, I need money. Uh, I got that. Uh, right. I, like, it, it's not going to be a surprise that you need money. And I'm, oh, you're fundraising? I've heard people say that to me in meetings. And I'm like, did you really not know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's always, if you're meeting with someone who works in a nonprofit, it is partially a fundraising meeting because they would like a, well, they would like a gift. Mm -hmm. There might be other things that they talk about, right? Uh, but like, absolutely, like, they are, they are, they're fundraising in there. And, I, and like, sometimes people who are affected by an issue, we need to hear their perspective. But the fact that they're affected by that issue does compromise their ability mm -hmm. and their and their conflict. Mm -hmm. For instance, if someone is, is, has been traumatized heavily, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Yep. We, can't, we can't expect them to go to work to yep. solve the thing that traumatized them. 
We want it. We need to hear from them, but like they might not be able to like put in the forty hours a week or yep. or, or honestly or the hundred hours a week that we would like. And, it, and we're doing that to some of them right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the like listening is much more. It's 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 uh, a challenge for yep. both sides, uh, and uh, and an ongoing thing. Um, you are um, obviously uh, you're so so you're here on the show because you're advising philanthropists uh, uh who do you want to be advising uh some of the folks listening to this season might very well be listening because they're interested in hiring a giving advisor mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well love the question um so we tend to work with and I, I don't really love these terms but they're terms that people use high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals families do you have any like dollars so i've heard different dollar amounts behind that is there do you, put you know i feel numbers? like people use different numbers all the time i i think you know, I tend to think ten million for for high net worth, and some that's people the say whole like, fa- that's like your whole family, like thirty million and up for ultra high net worth. Um, you know, or even as, as higher, really hundred million. There's so many people with over a hundred million that yeah, it's a category of, on its own. I think, and I think the interesting because that's a lot of money, obviously. totally. <laughs> and I, so a lot of a lot of our folks kind of fall into that upper category. They're not large enough to hire a full-time sort of philanthropic advisor, but they're doing enough work that it is too much for them to kind of manage themselves. And so oftentimes I sort of come in or we come in as kind of like a fractional chief philanthropic advisor for someone that's in that sort of maybe 30 million to 500 million category. You know, Mackenzie Scott has a whole team of people helping her with this. She doesn't need us. Um, But there are a lot of people that are doing very significant giving, you know, who don't need a full-time person. So we come in, um, you know, I I always like to mention names because I like not to be vague, though a lot of our folks do value their anonymity. We take that very seriously. You know, one one person I'll mention because it's really important to me personally, is a philanthropist in Western North Carolina, Blue Ridge Mountains, very focused on sort of economic develop, the intersection of economic development initiatives and the arts in sort of rural Appalachian communities. Um, Her name's Gina Phillips. She's the president of the Samuel L. Phillips Family Foundation and has been doing amazing work for years. I've heard that there's cool art out there. I think Steve Um, Martin lives out there. It's this amazing artistic community. Uh, that's right, because you have a North Carolina connection as well. That I've been meaning to visit, that I've heard is just like, well, downtown art scene is a really big deal. I so, thought, and I mean, funders and everything. So Asheville obviously has a big art scene. Um, this community, Spruce Pine, North Carolina, and Mitchell County. Uh, Mitchell County uh, has the Penland School of Craft, which is one of the, you know, at the forefront of so much of innovative craft work in the country. Um and, you know, as you can see, I could go on and on about this. But but this funder was so much fun to work with because we took a very holistic approach. We brought in stakeholders from across the community and word began to spread. Um, so folks across the state paid attention. The North Carolina School of the Arts got involved. Um, the Keenan Institute gave us some additional funding. So it's a great example of, of bringing all these folks together. There, there are more examples on our site Um you know, some families that folks might know. Um, Julia Pritzker-Vlock uh, has some kind words to say. Martha Molina Bernadette from the Molina Family Foundation. And there are a number of corporates as well. Um, Pizza Hut, uh, Mars, 
um, a number of other, you know, Wells Fargo folks that that you're. I was in more than one. Of. I was in more than one Pizza Hut commercial. Next time you are. Well. Next time you're meeting, there you go. Him, I said hello. <laughs> <laughs> I have. Um, it's been a while since I, I used to really love it there. I remember I read sometime that like once upon a time, like all the kale being purchased was being purchased by Pizza Hut to like decorate the salad bar. Wow. And then kale became a like trendy food to eat. <laughs> and at one point in human gone. history, it was just like little, they were the only ones who bought, they bought 90% of all the kale. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, for all I know it's still, I'm not sure they're still doing the salad bar. Uh, but the, yeah, the corporate giving uh, is a lot of the proposals that we read. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the think they are obviously marketing part of that, right? It's a corporation. So the, the folks who are just beginning and starting to target things are like really likely to find them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially if that's a business that's doing business in their community, then they will have already heard of them and right associate them with funding and all that. That's a lot. It's a disproportionately high number of the proposals we read mm-hmm. at unfunded list. Uh, and I've seen it be a really great springboard for, for a lot of groups. Uh, cause for all time, it's been true that it's, there's benefit to being a good corporate citizen, yep. supporting uh, local groups. I, I like about your story is that it was, you were, uh, this is somebody who is local to Western North Carolina mm-hmm. and, and hired an advisor who also knows and is from the area, mm-hmm. right? And focus on some of the causes there in a natural way. I do think there is a tendency to be like, I mean, honestly, it's a cliche at this point for, for donors to be, I had a, like a significant donor tell me. That like recently, I've become very concerned about climate change, and I've decided to focus my philanthropy on climate change. Mm-hmm. Like this, she told me this this year, and I don't know what to say to that sort of thing. I'm like you, I've been where I was six when I watched Captain Planet, right? And so that's my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> and so you've my whole life. You've just been there with money, giving it, not caring about like. This, that. I mean, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad that she's that they're there. But like, that's a sort of a, that one. Everybody should have some some climate change in their portfolio because they all live on the planet and enjoy the climate, right? Mm-hmm. And I would say like, if they ever listen to music, they should probably be doing something to fund musicians, right? Like, uh, and all of that. When you choose your issue, it's not like it, it doesn't necessarily need to be a big national global thing, right? We're not all going to become UN delegates, mm-hmm. right? You're going if it's impact. Uh, and family you're you're interested in, which you've said a lot of your clients are, mm-hmm. like that local plant, that local strategy is gonna gonna give them what they need. And and I think in the best case, important for and we were talking about that on the fundraising side as well, right? Local yeah, people in your local community, that's gonna be a much better fit. And I think in the best case, it weaves together a lot of things that you've always known to be true about yourself, <clears throat> but haven't really thought about in exactly that way. So this person has always been a fan of the arts, has always loved her community, has always wanted mm. to help folks in that community. But for so long, those were kind of three different pieces of her life and then realized that there's a certain intersectionality between them, which actually isn't a broadening of focus. It's a narrowing of focus because you're focusing on that intersection. And it it's something that is so... So people now who hear what she's doing say well that makes complete sense knowing you for your whole life this makes total sense as the thing that you would focus on and i think one and and i can't take credit for that synergy because she came up with that herself before we started talking but um i think for so many folks that's the work that we do trying to think about 
the authentic components of their life and how those can be pieced together into a way that drives real impact and generates true meaning individually and personally for them. Well, it's very interesting work. That's why we've chosen to uh, interview people doing it. It is one of the fastest growing fields in the world, right? And you're part of that trend. You've, you've been you've been a trendsetter <laughs> most of your life, right? The anyway, uh, uh, best of luck with it. Uh, one, it. One last chance to plug it. It is un, untraditionalphilanthropy.com. Yes. Uh, and you've got a, your website up, and people can check, check out the website. Out We've got a page that talks about all we do. Also, a page that talks about what we don't do, which is actually one of my very favorite pages. There's some mm-hmm. surprising tidbits there. So check it out, and we would love to talk more. Absolutely. Uh, and also, if you send us a proposal this spring, uh, maybe Chandler will be one of your reviewers. If it's a literacy proposal, almost certain. I use, that's pretty much what I generally assign to him. Stuff with stuff about young folks. But although now I've learned a lot more about you, you might be getting more... A broader list. Interesting source. Certainly now if I get West North, West North Carolina arts... <laughs> Economic development. Love it. Yeah, that, those, are, those might be coming your way now. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> All right, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you for having me. And thank you, David Jaffe, as always. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Good luck with your fundraising and your grant making. Have a good night. Yay! <laughs>